reading recently in First Peter or Second Peter. Now I'm trying to remember which one it is, where Peter says one that those who speak ought to speak as those speaking the oracles of God. And so, on the one hand, it's important to me that I preach with authority. Um, preaching that's not preached with authority is not cognizant of the fact that it's preaching the word of God, the oracles of God. And uh, authority doesn't mean you put on it in effect a certain manner, but it's just that sense of there is an authoritativeness to this exercise. But then it's interesting that the other aspect in Peter that he talks about is um, that everyone who has a gift should use his gift in serving others. And so my prayer and desire is that while I speak authoritatively as one speaking the oracles of God, that, that, that you would also see and know and understand and that it would be true of me that I am using whatever gift God has given me for as long as he gives it to me to serve you. And so I pray that I serve you this morning and every Sunday. So we come to Acts chapter 2. Last week, we took this deep dive into the three harvest feasts of Israel. And we saw that unlike our annual Thanksgiving harvest feast, which again, we we, we can thank God for our redemption at Thanksgiving, but again, there's nothing, our Thanksgiving is not a God-appointed feast connected with our redemption. That's just clear. So unlike our Thanksgiving, Israel's harvest feasts were all celebrations of Israel's redemption, which included three aspects. Deliverance from Egypt, the gift of the law at Sinai, and the entrance into the land at Canaan. And sometimes it can be easier for us to forget that the gift of the law at Sinai was an aspect of Israel's redemption, intimately tied to the coming out of the land of Egypt and the entrance into Canaan. So each of Israel's annual feasts are all of them connected in Scripture with all three of those redemptive realities. All three of them explicitly connected in Scripture. But we saw last week that the seven-day feast of Passover and unleavened bread at the beginning of the harvest season in the first month emphasizes especially the exodus from Egypt. The seven-day feast of ingathering or booths at the end of the harvest season in the seventh month, emphasizes especially the blessings of Israel's inheritance in the land of promise. And then that one day, Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, in the third month, which is the conclusion and the culmination of Passover. It's connected with Passover as its, as its culmination, in a sense. That reminds us especially of the gift of the law at Sinai, and the people's obligation to keep that law if they would enter the land and continue long in the land, enjoying its blessings. So how are those three different aspects of Israel's redemption represented in their three annual feasts? How are they fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt and God's judgment and the death of the firstborn? That was a type, a shadow, pointing to the greater redemption. And I I just loved to say the greater redemption. From slavery to sin and death that Christ would accomplish for his people. Isn't there just something about that, hearing that preached? But but we know that. We we know it, right? And we could hear it all the time at home. But to come to the to the public worship of God's people and have that proclaimed to us. What a beautiful thing. This was a type then of that deliverance that Christ accomplishes for his people. Israel's entrance into the promised rest of the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, was also a type. It was a shadow pointing to that eternal rest from our works, right, uh, from, from our own strivings, the, and really from the bondage of sin as well, 
the eternal rest that Christ accomplishes for us and the spiritual blessings he lavishes on us. That's the Feast of Ingathering, or Booths. But here's the question. What about the Law Covenant at Sinai, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost? How is that aspect of Israel's redemption fulfilled in Jesus? Now, in one sense, certainly it's fulfilled in the fact that he kept the law given at Sinai. He kept it and fulfilled it for us. And he also then suffered the curse of that law in our place. So it's fulfilled in Christ. Sinai is fulfilled in Christ in that sense. Um, But there's another sense. Is there any evidence in Acts chapter 2? Luke doesn't highlight it explicitly, but God has placed it there. Is there evidence in Acts 2 for a fulfillment of the law covenant at Sinai in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost? So here we go. When God uh, came down on Mount Sinai to give the people his law, his coming, now they already had his law. How do they already have his law? It's already, it was already uh, hardwired into their being as people created in God's image. Um, but when God gave them his law, he gave it to them uniquely in the context of a covenant. That's what was beautiful about this moment. When he did this, his coming was powerfully manifested to all the people, to the whole nation of Israel with audible and visual signs. It was very much an audio-visual experience. So we read in Acts 19, On the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This isn't a a manifestation to a few. It's to all the people. So it happened on the third day. When it was morning that there were thunder, audible, Lightning flashes, visual, a thick cloud upon the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Never again since that day had God manifested himself in a similar way to all the 12 tribes of Israel together. That was a unique day in redemptive history. The only one of its kind for many hundreds of years. Then we come to Acts chapter 2. And sometimes we sell Acts chapter 2 short. Remember, we see little candles above their heads. And we hear this, this like, We hear this wind blowing and we kind of romanticize it. No, it's not what's going on here, right? We saw that last time. We read in verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, he starts out, they were all together in one place. He's not just trying to be dramatic here. And yet he's clearly emphasizing they were all together here in one place. The emphasis is on the complete number. Of the disciples. So in chapter 1, after listening, after listing the 11 apostles, minus Judas Iscariot, Luke said, These all, he, he keeps emphasizing all, with one accord, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. He's referring there specifically to the 11 apostles. Then it's immediately after, immediately after he tells us how Matthias was added to the number of the apostles to bring it back to 12, it's then that Luke says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, these 12 apostles, were all together in one place. Now, no doubt there were more than just 12 apostles there. It wasn't just them. Earlier, there was a crowd of 120 including Jesus' mother and his brothers and other women were there. But Luke's focus is not, on, is not directly on all of them. His focus is directly on the 12 apostles as the new covenant fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
So with the 12 apostles all together in one place, what do you see? What do we have? We have this representative nucleus, okay, of the entire New Covenant community that is about to be birthed, okay? So even as the 12 tribes of Israel were gathered at Sinai, now the 12 apostles, representing all of Jesus' disciples, gathered there and maybe not gathered in that upper room. They are, these 12 apostles are all gathered in one place. And even as God manifested his presence at Sinai with audible and visual signs when the 12 tribes of Israel were being birthed as the Old Covenant community. When, when were the 12 tribes of Israel birthed as God's Old Covenant community? It was at Mount Sinai. They're all gathered there, audible and visual signs. So now, God manifests his presence at Pentecost with audible, visual signs. The 12 apostles, together with the rest of the disciples, are being birthed. And there is a sense in which the New Covenant community began to exist from the moment Jesus began his public ministry, when he began calling people to be his disciples. But there is another sense in which it's birthed here at Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. You get the sense of what is happening here. Suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a gale force rushing wind. A wind powerful enough to wreak havoc and destruction. And yet, in this case, it's a wind that is the breath of God breathing life into a new covenant people. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting And there appeared, so there's the audio, here's the visual, there appeared to them tongues like fire dividing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And so what we have here is, as it were, the new covenant, Sinai. Now, I I use Sinai for the new covenant in a very um, qualified sense, but this is the new covenant, Sinai. There's a dramatic sensory display here that mirrors Mount Sinai and that even in a real sense surpasses Mount Sinai. But now let's look at this because this is where we begin to understand the beauty of this. We see the parallel between Sinai and Pentecost, but we also see there's a difference, isn't there? And that's what we get hung up on sometimes. We're like, yeah, but, but boy, there's a lot of differences. And that's the point of the type. There's similarity, but there's difference. So God said to Moses in Exodus three times, like in a row, and finally at the end, Moses kind of like, yes, you you told me that before. God says, yes, and I'm going to tell it to you yet again, right? He says, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware, you do do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And then again, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to see, and many of them perish. And again, then Yahweh said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. Moses tells us that the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. And that's when you're grateful. It's on the top of the mountain. And you're at the base uh, uh, a safe distance away. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, the audio-visual sensory overload at that point. And the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and the people perceived it and they shook and stood at a distance. But in Acts 2, instead, and by the way, those warnings were good for the people in the Old Testament. Israel was not a regenerate people. They needed warnings like that. That was for their good. That was God's grace to them. But in Acts 2, instead of warnings and boundaries, 
and a consuming fire far off at the top of the mountain, we see tongues like fire dividing themselves and coming to rest upon each one of the 12 apostles and probably also the rest of the disciples. The point is not that God is not still a consuming fire. It's not like God was a consuming fire and now he's not. No, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear. God is always has been and always will be a consuming fire. But on this day, and for this new covenant people, the fire of God's presence, rather than resulting in the response of fear and trembling and standing far off, lest they die, is now the source of a new boldness and a new joy and a new life for the people. When the author of Hebrews looks back at Mount Sinai, he depicts a scene of darkness and gloom, and then he uses a word that's not in Acts, but he uses the word, there was a word, it was a whirlwind. And he associates all that with fear and trembling. But what do we have in Acts 2? We have a wind here too, don't we? A gale force rushing wind. This is not a gentle breeze. But rather than provoking fear and trembling, it is again the source of a new boldness and joy. Pentecost is the new covenant, Sinai. We see the parallels. And yet at the same time, everything in your handout, everything has changed. We have not come, as the writer of Hebrews says, to a mountain that may be touched, to Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion. All things have become new, but how do we explain this newness? Why this change? Why is this fire not consuming them, right? Why are they not full of fear and trembling and standing afar off here on this day of Pentecost, this new covenant Sinai? What is, what is it that explains this newness? So we continue. The law covenant at Sinai was accompanied by covenant blessings. If you keep the covenant, you get covenant blessings. If you break the covenant, there are covenant curses. Now, the ultimate curse for God's people was to be led away. The final, kind of the final end of the road curse was to be led into exile by a foreign people. Specifically, by a people whose tongue or language the Israelites would not understand or be able to hear is the way they often describe it. So Moses says in Deuteronomy, but it will be if you do not listen to the voice of Yahweh your God to keep and to do all his commandments and his statutes, Sinai, law, with which I am commanding you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. And I think it's interesting that in the Greek, which the New Testament writers were were very familiar with, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says, I will bring upon you a nation whose voice you will not hear. So hearing has the sense of understanding. 700 years later, the prophet Isaiah warned the people, indeed, Yahweh will speak to this people through a stammering lips and a foreign tongue. God's going to speak to them by bringing the the Assyrians, speaking in a foreign language, and it's going to be the language of God's judgment. And then 100 years after that, God speaks through Jeremiah. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. And again, referring back to the covenant curses for breaking the law at Sinai, a nation whose tongue you do not know, nor can you understand. And guess what the Greek says? Nor can you hear what they say. So this unintelligible tongue 
of foreigners would be the sign that the curses of the covenant of a broken covenant at Sinai has come upon them for all their covenant breaking. And by the way, brothers and sisters, those covenant curses for the people were a picture of the curse that's come upon all of us. For the broken covenant in the garden, the death that has come upon us, the misery that has come upon us, because we all in Adam broke the covenant. We are all of us born into this world covenant breakers. And so the curse of the covenant has come upon us. Now this, old, this Mosaic covenant, with its covenant curses, was a picture of that reality. So the prophet Isaiah, he speaks of a future day of restoration. Because we who are covenant breakers, what hope do we have? We cannot achieve anything through a broken covenant. Covenant's broken. It's it's worthless to attain salvation through. What hope do we have? So the prophet Isaiah said this, Who among us can sojourn with the consuming fire? Think the fire at Sinai. Think the fire at Pentecost. Who among us can sojourn with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Not covenant breakers. Covenant keepers. You will no longer see a fierce people. A people of unintelligible speech which no one comprehends. And guess what the Greek says? Which no one hears. There's a reason I'm saying that. Of a stammering tongue which no one understands. And again, the Greek, no comprehension for the hearer. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our law giver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. What hope do covenant breakers have? The almighty, omnipotent power of God who is who has committed himself to saving his people. Notice how the one who can sojourn with the consuming fire and the continual burning, who is he? He's the one who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. And notice how that day when God's covenant people are no longer going to hear those foreign, strange, unintelligible tongues That day is closely linked with Yahweh as Israel's lawgiver. In other words, one day, God will give the people his law. He already gave them his law. But one day, he will give them his law in such a way that they will all walk righteously and speak uprightly. When God gave to his people the law at Sinai, it did not result in them all walking righteously and speaking uprightly. The covenant at Sinai with the law written on tablets of stone was a covenant that Israel broke, even as we all broke the covenant in Adam. So God said that he would cut a new covenant with his people. At that point, we just stand up and shout for joy. The God who has made a covenant with Adam in the garden, typified now in the covenant with his people, that we all broke, says, I'll make a new covenant with you. Did we deserve that? We deserved the opposite. So in the new covenant, or he says, we'll cut a new covenant with people. He says, I will put my law within them. What a miracle. And on their heart, I will write it. I will inscribe it on their heart. How does God do that? I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the language of covenant. In the new covenant, that's what we are in. God is still our lawgiver. But now he has given us the law 
He has gifted that law to us. Not written upon tablets of stone, but written upon our hearts. Now the law is not something external to us, right? We don't look externally to something inscribed outside of us, but it's something that God has put within us. And what this means is that, oh, and let me see. Yeah, I'll come back to that later. Well, I just want to say this, okay. In the Old Covenant, God did write his law upon the hearts of individuals. It wasn't on the covenant people, but under the covenant of grace, someone who writes Psalm 119, he had the law written on his heart. Right. But there is still a difference. Even for the, even for the man who wrote Psalm 119, he's expressing the law written on his heart and his love for that law. But now this law that is within us is a law that has been lived, that has been enfleshed in history by Jesus Christ. So those who had the law written on their hearts under the Old Covenant, they did not have that law written on their hearts by one who had lived and enfleshed that law perfectly. We do. And there's some wonderful mystery that I'm not going to bother trying to define in careful definitions. I don't know that I can. I just know that it's something wonderful. What all this means is that while the Old Covenant could be and was broken by the Old Covenant people, the New Covenant, the Covenant of Grace, Now, do you love the blank there? I give you blanks because not because I get to tell you what it is and you don't know what it is. You can know, but don't you love filling it in? It can never be broken. See, what's the point? God says, oh, I made this covenant and it was, everything was good. There was nothing wrong with the covenant, but everything wrong with us. And then God says, well, I'll make a new covenant with you. Well, what's the good of new covenant? If everything wrong with us is not somehow Fixed. And that's the beauty of this new covenant. It can never be broken by God's new covenant people. What this means then in turn is that there are no curses attached to the new covenant. The old covenant came with curses attached. The new covenant does not come with curses attached. God's new covenant people, that's you, brother, sister, You cannot experience covenant curses. You are safe. You are fully redeemed and saved, and you are are in that ark now of Christ, protected, guarded, shielded. Which means, never again will God speak to his people through tongues that they cannot hear or understand. That's the Apostle Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14. He's showing the Corinthians that uninterpreted, that's the key word, untranslated tongues, in other words, praying in an unknown but real language, should never be practiced in the church's public worship. Why? He quotes Isaiah. In the law, it is written, and by the way, he quotes Isaiah, but he says, in the law, he wants us to see that this is an old covenant thing. In the law, it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, this disobedient, rebellious, obstinate, unbelieving people, And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So, Paul concludes, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe. And when he says tongues, he means untranslated, uninterpreted tongues in the assembly. They're they're for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Let's put it this way. Unintelligible speech, spoken by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. That was the means that God used to speak to what kind of people? To what kind of covenant people? An unbelieving and disobedient old covenant people. 
Therefore, unintelligible speech, not in this case Babylonians and Assyrians, but uninterpreted, untranslated prayer in an unknown language, unintelligible speech can have no place in the assembly of God's believing and obedient new covenant people. You see? Unintelligible speech is not fitting here in the assembly of God's new covenant people for three reasons. But not, not just because it fails to edify, because you won't have any clue what, what I'm saying. That's one reason. Not just because if there was an unbeliever here, he would start mocking us and making fun. Not just for that reason. But there's a third reason that it's un- inappropriate here. Because under the old covenant, it was the sign of the curse on a law-breaking, unbelieving people. But by God's grace, that's not what this is. Unintelligible speech in the New Covenant community contradicts Isaiah's prophecy concerning that day when God would write his law on our hearts. What did he say about that day when God's written his law on our hearts? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech which no one comprehends, hears. Of a stammering tongue, which no one understands, hears. It's in this light, then, that we read in Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. The evidence suggests that this is in other unlearned languages, real languages, but languages that these Galileans had not learned learned themselves. As the Spirit was giving them utterance, so we don't imagine them all at the same time, all talking in these tongues. No, it was proper. It was done in an orderly manner. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were astounded and marveling, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How do they know how to speak these languages? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, what's the point? It's interesting, we all know they spoke in tongues at Pentecost, right? A lot of people know that, at least. But what's the point? Some say that this miracle was necessary so that the Jews who had come to Jerusalem from so far away for the feast of Pentecost so they could understand God's message, the gospel message. But most of the crowd there in Jerusalem all spoke the same language. They all spoke Greek. That was the lingua franca of the day. It was probably in Greek that they were all addressing each other. Because what were they all saying to each other? Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each, all of us, all of us here who all speak different languages, but they're still talking to each other, that we hear them in our own language? And our language of our birth is their point. Moreover, it's probably in Greek that Peter addressed the entire crowd. There's evidence for that. I've put some cross-references in your handout, but also just historically. Peter addressed the entire crowd in a moment in Greek when he began to preach. So if these tongues were not necessary, practically, then they must be given as a sign. The miracle of Galileans speaking in unlearned languages is a sign in your handout that authenticated not only the things being spoken in those languages, right? If I'm speaking it in a foreign language I've never learned, there might be some truth to what I'm saying. But also 
the message that Peter was about to preach. So God uses miracles to get people's attention and to authenticate his message and his word. And yet, and yet, here's something different. Never before in redemptive history ever that we know of has this kind of miracle been seen. So why here? Why all of a sudden tongues? Why now? Some point out, and I think appropriately so, we'll revisit this later, that this is the sign of the reversal of Babel. When God confused people's languages and scattered them over the face of the earth, now in this new covenant community at Pentecost that's being birthed, God is going to gather people again from all those different nations and languages of the earth into one people, into one nation. But before we jump all the way to that conclusion, which again, I think is very legitimate, we have to remember the evidence of the text. Luke emphasizes only the Jews or proselytes to Judaism. What does he say? Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem. Devout men, observant Jews from every nation under heaven. Look, when Peter preaches, who does he address? Who does he talk to when Peter preaches? Men, Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem. Then he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Men, brothers, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain. So the emphasis here, and for the next five chapters in Acts, is exclusively on Jews. And what is it that these Jews keep marveling at? They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were astounded and marveling, saying, How is it that we hear them in our own language, in which we were born? Not in Greek, which we all know, but we're hearing them in our own language in which we were born. We hear them in our own tongues. In our own tongues. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, Peter is going to explain the meaning in just a moment of the outpouring of all those spirit-inspired utterances. Why are are people speaking these spirit-inspired utterances? But one thing we miss, Peter does not ever explain the tongues themselves. The meaning of the tongues themselves. Tongues particularly were never prophesied in the Old Testament never heard of or seen. So it leaves, us, it leaves it to us to look at this and say, why does God do this here? Why this particular miracle for the first time right now? It is certainly a sign in your handout that the curse has given way to blessing. Never again will God speak to his people. And I'm not saying that all the people who hear are all part of God's covenant people, new covenant, but certainly a great vast number of them are. We're about to see 3,000 baptized in one day. Never again will God speak to his people through tongues they cannot hear or understand. The curse of the broken old covenant at Sinai. And therefore, even the curse of the broken covenant with Adam, of which we have all partaken, has been replaced. With the blessings of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, which can never be broken. And not, not because of something of, in our own nature, or our own efforts or striving. It's a covenant that can never be broken because God has seen fit to do a work in all of us. If there is no more covenant curse, well then, that means 
that that disobedient, unbelieving, old covenant people who were formed at Sinai are now being replaced with an obedient. The disobedient being replaced with an obedient new covenant people at Pentecost. Instead of being defined and marked out by the law written on tablets of stone, what set Israel apart? The law on tablets of stone. How are we now defined and marked out? By the law written upon our hearts. That's what defines and marks us out. So we listen now to Peter. He responds to the mockers who were saying the disciples were all drunk. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men, Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Before even the first meal of the day, way too early to be intoxicated, as all the mockers knew very well. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, so we are in the last days, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it should be all flesh, because the point there is not all flesh universally, Jews and Gentiles. The point is all flesh in Israel, all Jewish flesh, all Israelite flesh. Now, it it ends up being fulfilled even more universally. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. See, but when Peter quotes this, he's still thinking of Israel. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male slaves and female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, this is very important. Please listen closely to this. We know that even in the New Testament church, not all of God's people were seeing uh, visions. And not all of God's people were dreaming dreams. And not all of God's people were prophesying. We know that because Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 12. So when Joel prophesies and says, then you're all going to be doing this, what is he saying? How is that fulfilled in this moment? This is the key. Joel's emphasis is not on the dreams, the visions, or the prophecies, but on what they signified under the Old Covenant. Contrary to the charismatic and and Pentecostal movement today, that's not the ultimate point. Joel's emphasis, here's the key, is on the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as the one who calls the people through dreams and visions given to the prophets and therefore through the prophets to keep the law given at Sinai. The prophets were not novel people coming up with new things to say. They were calling people to the old way, to the ancient way, to the law. So that was always the purpose of the prophets. We read in 2 Kings. Yet Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by the hand of all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you by the hand of my slaves, the prophets. However, they did not listen but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in Yahweh their God. They also rejected his statutes and his covenant. What did the prophets do? They called people to keep the covenant, to keep the law, which he cut with their fathers. But they ignored the warnings with which he had warned them. So we understand why Moses says in the book of Numbers, would that all the people of Yahweh were prophets. Not so that you can have all sorts of people talking all the time. He says, would that all of God's people were prophets, that he would put his spirit upon them. When all of God's people are prophets, then all of God's people 
will be born again. That's the point. When all of God's people are prophets, then all of God's people will have the law written on their hearts. They will all of them hear a word behind them saying, this is the way. The way of obedience and righteousness. Walk in it. When all of God's people are prophets, then the covenant God has made with them will never ever be broken. There'll be no more covenant curses, just covenant blessings. And so we come back to where we started. All the fear and all the trembling at Sinai, we understand now, don't we? Why it has been fully replaced with joy and boldness at Pentecost. This is why. Maybe then we understand more fully why we read in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. As for me and Isaiah, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit, which is upon you, upon my, my people, um, uh, and at that point, upon Isaiah, and my words, my statutes and judgments and laws, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth. No more covenant breaking. Nor shall they depart from the mouth of your seed. Nor from the mouth of your seed seed, says Yahweh, from now on and forever. What we see at Pentecost is the fulfillment of Sinai. We see it in the gale force rushing wind and the tongues like fire. We see it in the miracle of tongues. And we see it in the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about all God's people being prophets. There's still one more way that we see Pentecost as the fulfillment of Sinai. As Peter continues to preach, we hear him say in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Okay? No, I just can't. I can't. Okay, if we know our Old Testaments, and when we see those words, miracles and wonders and signs, first guy we think about, Moses, period, immediately, instinctive. But here we're talking about a man attested by God being Jesus with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So when we hear about that, I, I said it, I couldn't wait. It's impossible for us not to think about the miracles, wonders, and signs God did through Moses. Why do I say that? Well, of the 17 times that you have that phrase, this isn't just a single word, this is a phrase, signs and wonders, or wonders and signs as it's usually in Acts. Of the 17 times that appears in the Old Testament, 13 of them, and the majority right at the very beginning, all refer to the plagues in Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea, miracles God did by the hand of Moses. So what do we read in Deuteronomy, then Psalm 105? There has not yet arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, and we know that Jesus is that prophet like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face in regard to all the signs and wonders which Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land. And in regard to all the mighty power, in regard to all the great terror which Moses did in the sight of all Israel. In Psalm 105, God sent forth Moses, his servant, Aaron, him whom he chose. He set in them the words of his signs and wonders in the land of Ham. And then in Acts chapter 7, we're going to hear in a little while, Stephen saying, This man, Moses, led them out doing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. In the Bible, there are two men, and I'm not saying two men on an equal basis, but there are two who performed 
signs and wonders. There's Moses, and there's Jesus. When we hear of the signs and wonders God did through Jesus, we think immediately of Moses, and we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. Not just as the one through whom God has accomplished a greater redemption for us. Well, this is in relation to that but also as the one who is our greater lawgiver. Coming out of Egypt, the gift of the law at Sinai, entrance into the land of Canaan. We have experienced these same realities in their fullness and fulfillment. We have been redeemed from sin and death. We have our great lawgiver, Jesus Christ, who has now written his law upon our hearts. And we have the promise of rest. Not only now, with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places lavished upon us, but when one day we enter fully into our inheritance. Here is redemption. But what I want to emphasize today is that the gift of the law is as much a part of your redemption as anything else. If Moses, sorry, Peter says in verses 32 to 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this which you both see and hear. What did Moses come down the mountain bringing? What does Jesus bring to us? If Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive the law in order that he might give it to the people written on tablets of stone, Jesus, brothers and sisters, has done what no other man could do and what we could not have conceived. There could be a man to do this as the God-man. He has ascended not up to a Mount Sinai, a mountain that may be touched. He has ascended into heaven to receive from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit in order that by pouring out the Spirit upon us, he might put God's law within us. The law that has been lived and enfleshed in him. Writing it not upon tablets of stone, but writing it upon the tablet of my heart, on the tablet of your heart. I invite you to consider that redemptive reality. That if you are truly a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, then the law has been inscribed upon your heart. But if we do not have the the law of Christ inscribed on our hearts, if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, how can we say that we are His? We know this is not to say that we keep it perfectly, but we also know it is to say we have a changed heart through faith in the one who kept the law perfectly in our place and suffered its curse for those who deserved that curse. Here then is a miracle beyond all our ability to comprehend. So we just ask ourselves with the Apostle Paul, if the ministry of death in letters through no fault of the letters, (laughs) but the the fault of the people. If the ministry of death in letters, having been engraved on stones, came with glory, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be even more in glory? Pentecost supersedes Sinai. If the ministry of condemnation the covenant that was broken not just at Sinai, but that we all broke in Adam, has glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness. What a beautiful word. Abound in glory. Today, 
today, and, and I want to say, I say today, today generically as in every day in the present, but let me just say today, Sunday, this morning, now. We all of us hear that word behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. Today, we all have an anointing from the Holy One. And we all, as John says, I love the word he uses, he says, and we all know. He has in mind Jeremiah. So he continues. The anointing whom we have received from him abides in us, in us. And we have no need for anyone to teach us saying, know the Lord. But as his anointing teaches us about all things, so that we all know the Lord from the least to the greatest, as it says in Jeremiah. And as this anointing is true and is not a lie, and just as he, our lawgiver, has taught us, so let us abide in him. See, God has done the work at Pentecost. And now he calls us, in whom he has written his laws, to abide in Christ. And through that union with him, to bring forth the fruit of the new covenant unto the blessings of eternal life. May God give us his grace to to understand, right? How, How wonderful it is that God doesn't speak to us through foreign tongues any longer. He speaks to us today through the clarity of his gospel written on our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, if there should be anyone today who has professed Christianity but does not have the work of the Spirit the transforming work, writing your laws upon his or her heart. I would pray now that through the preaching of your word and the, 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 the scene at Pentecost and, and, and the, the panoramic view of how you have brought about this redemption that is so great for such fallen, hell-bound sinners as all of us are as covenant breakers. I just pray that through this you open, open their eyes and bring them to Christ who offers this salvation freely, fully to sinners. And Lord, for those of us who have come in saving faith to the foot of the cross, who have received the Spirit of Christ, who have had his laws inscribed upon our hearts, we give you eternal, everlasting thanks that you took us from that place where we were utterly hopeless, without God, without hope in the world, (laughs) And, and you have made a new covenant with us that cannot be broken. There are no covenant curses, only blessings. And so help us now then to abide in Christ day to day, to to know the joy of walking righteously and speaking uprightly. To know the joy, not of the ministry of condemnation written in letters on stones, but, but the joy of the ministry of the Spirit who is mighty and powerful to be our helper, our comforter, our advocate. Lord, we rejoice in in these things and thank you for the way that you feed us and help us to go forth this week to be an obedient, a faithful, and a believing covenant people by your grace. Lord, we confess, even as we consider these things, that we are all still sinners, that we still struggle, and that sometimes even sins seem to beset us strongly. May we be not just convicted, but encouraged and filled with new hope. 
as we consider the work of the Spirit and the promises you've made. And that through this you bring a renewed a renewed victory and joy of triumph in the lives of each one of us. We thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.